Hey, you're going to love this interview with Adrian Schwager, the co-founder and CEO of Growth Assistant. We talk all about how she is saving companies boatloads of money by helping them to hire offshore marketing talent. We also talk about how to be a more empathetic and clear-minded decision maker as the head of an organization. And we talk a little bit about how past guest Jesse Puji and his phenomenally successful digital marketing agency, Ampush, laid the groundwork for Growth Assistant to have enormous success after just two years in business. I think you're going to take a lot away from it. Here's my conversation with Adrian. You know, we see these tech crunch headlines and someone raises hundreds of millions of dollars and, you know, this, this crazy money flying all over the place, maybe less so this year than in previous years. But for the majority of businesses, we're not, you know, pitching SoftBank for investment. We're not able to just kind of have this kind of abnormal uh, growth. A lot of us are bootstrapped. A lot of us are trying to make do with limited resources. And not many of us are accomplishing the growth that you have uh, with Growth Assistant. The, the last thing I saw was that you guys were at 6 million in annually recurring revenue, and that's in less than two years. So just give people a picture of the growth, the, the, the hockey stick, or give people a picture of the trajectory that you guys are on and how you, how you got there. Yeah, and actually, um, we turned two later this week. It's our two-year birthday, and we just hit, we just crossed seven million. So, um, wow. we're, as you as you mentioned, did all that less than two years. Um, done it with with very minimal staff, stateside staff. Uh, I've kind of built the whole business the way I'm teaching others to build their business uh, with outsourced um, labor. So. Uh, the, my, uh, the majority of my workforce is in the Philippines and that has allowed me to continue to be bootstrapped. So from the very beginning, just like most bootstrap companies start, you know, I was doing everything. So I was taking all the sales calls. I was doing all the talent acquisition. Um, and as I started growing, uh, I, I incorporated the business model that I'm selling other people into my business. So my first, I would say 10 employees were in the Philippines. Um, that got me through about the first year. And then I hired my first stateside person. So our first stateside person has been here just about a year now. Um, currently, like today, I have 25 uh, people in the Philippines on my core team, on my internal team. And um, I have, uh, let's see, five people stateside. So um, that that's, this is exactly how I'm telling others they can grow their business. And um, there, there's a big need for it, not only from bootstrap businesses, obviously, but big corporations as well. Um, and we continue to see growth there. Another thing that really led us to this huge trajectory is our, uh, our lead volume. So to date, we really haven't paid for any paid ads yet. All of our leads have come from, I would say 80% of our leads have probably come from Twitter. Um, and that was a big surprise for us, a pleasant surprise. So I, I like to tell this story uh, because it a lot of the I think bootstrap founders can um, uh, who have gotten like a big wave of interest uh, can can step into these shoes really easily. But uh, the first, you know, like I said in the beginning, I was I was doing it all. I was doing the sales calls, I was doing the talent acquisition, all of it, and then I hired my first recruiter and in the Philippines and kind of grew from there. Um, but our first uh, our first leads were from my co-founder Jesse from his network. Um, so we, we met with them. Uh, I sold them on the product. They said, yeah, I want, I really could have used two of these months ago. 
Um, so we, we kind of had a, a proven uh, idea at that point. Um, so we, uh, so I continued to find the talent, but get the leads as well. So those were the first leads, like I said, coming in from Jesse's network. The, the second thing that happened to for us, which was pretty incredible, was that we were mentioned in a newsletter. And then I knew that mention was going to happen. And in prep of that, I was like, well, I have no idea. I'll just get these in email. Like, I don't know if it's going to be 10, if it's going to be 100 people. I don't know. So I made a type form uh, and hooked it up to the website. Uh, and I, I think I linked it to HubSpot. I, maybe I didn't even link it to HubSpot at that point. I probably didn't. Um, but at least I had somewhere where I could organize the leads and then filter them for the people who needed the service quicker or, um, you know, the largest name um, business on there. Um, and so that newsletter went out and I had 14. I was like, oh, my gosh, I have a wait list. How cute. It's like 14. But it was so exciting at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then within a couple, maybe two weeks of that, Jesse wrote a thread um, on uh, on growth assistant and us starting the business. Um, and, you know, it talked about our friendship and, and everything else as well. And that thing went viral. So we had uh, we had 300 leads by the end of that by the end of that thread, like running its course. Um, and again, it was just me at this time getting on the phone with everybody to sell them, getting, you know, all of our all of our um, uh, sales are done through a call, like an actual Zoom call. So. Um, it wasn't like I could send them something over email and we could just like quickly trade um, information. It would, you know, this is an actual sales call that needs to happen. So I, uh, uh, I then hired um, a recruiter because I had to offload some of the recruiting load so that I could continue to take the sales calls. Um, but that is really what what rocketed us. I would say that first year continued. Twitter continues to be our lead source now as well. Like I said, our major lead source. Um, we still leverage um, Jesse's network a lot. Um, uh, have done some some outbound um, things, and really just selling within our expansions within our current accounts have been really what's led to the the growth. And so, can you just summarize really quickly for folks what the the founding insight was and how that's translated into the offerings that you bring? Like, is it a large suite of offerings? Is it a relatively you know, small amount of, you know, productized services that, that folks are hiring you guys for? Yeah, when we started the business, um, so my co-founder and I, Jesse, we're childhood friends. We go way back. Um, he, growing up, he was like my little brother and I was like his big sister. And now professionally, it's probably flipped a little bit. He's probably more like my big brother. Um, but we, we um, he actually uh, just recently sold his company, Ampush. Um, and Ampush is a well-known digital marketing agency. So kind of one of the first movers in that space, uh, you know, well-known by Facebook and others. So um, they uh, they had an offshore model within Ampush um, that they leveraged. Uh, and Jesse would go visit uh, a bunch of in-house brand teams. They'd invite him in to come like check out their systems and process and, you know, do roundtables on how to improve. Uh, and during these visits, he would, he would just be like, why are they not, why aren't they doing that much? They don't seem to be getting a lot done. And what it came down to is no one was leveraging these offshore resources. Um, the strategy people were running the reports were doing kind of the manual implementation pieces of, of this work where, um, he had figured out to, how to offshore those. So he had had this idea for a while, I think cooking, um, just and it was just very obvious 
um, that this would relieve, uh, you know, a lot of the bottlenecks that um, the brand teams had. So um, growth assistant, that's really where growth assistant, uh, the idea came from. Um, so we, we were kind of bringing Jesse's, that idea and Jesse's network of in-house brand teams that would need this idea. And my, I would say what we brought to the table for me, like my unfair advantage is more of the um, like talent acquisition people ops piece um, where, where my background came into play. And so essentially every, we believe every uh, marketing team could use growth assistance. Um, every marketing team, every agency could use them. Uh, and it, we started with just digital marketers, graphic designers to start. Our offering has expanded quite a bit. Um, we have teams come back and ask for uh, help in other departments once they once they figure out how they can leverage the talent generally. They'll come back and ask for help with other departments. Um, but uh, the majority of our um, of our roles are within marketing. Is there anything that you haven't been able to fill that has been brought to you, or has it been pretty, you know, robust in terms of the the pool of labor that you can tap into? Yeah, so sometimes people uh, will meet with us and describe something that's more strategy driven. So a role that requires someone to come up with the digital marketing strategy. We really aren't a substitute for that. Um, it, this is more of a, a service that helps your strategy person focus more on strategy. So it kind of augments your strategy person. It doesn't replace your strategy person. That makes sense. Got it. And then when you're talking about, you know, you didn't say land and expand, but you basically said existing clients expand their accounts. It's basically saying, okay, you, you help me with one or two people. Let's make it three, four, five, seven, eleven. Yeah. And and that's an amazing, you know, business one oh one concept, which is it can be difficult to land those initial clients, maybe less so if, you know, Jesse's out there writing viral Twitter threads. But once you have those clients in place and you're delivering service to them the ability to incrementally provide more value and then collect larger fees is a much lesser lift than that kind of initial client acquisition. 100%. One of the great things about this model, and actually one of the most rewarding things, is when you plug in a growth assistant who takes 30% of the time or gives 30% of the time back to the strategist, right? Now your strategy person is rolling out more strategies, more campaigns. You know, they they should be scaling your business 30% more than they were before because they have that time back where they were doing kind of the more manual implementation pieces of it. Um, they've given that to a growth assistant and now your business should scale. And as your business scales, you're gonna need more growth assistants, right? So it's a, it's a model that if it's working correctly, it it, the business, the client's business scales and the growth assistant scales along with them. We really be just become a partner with them. Um, and in the same way, if a business contracts, you know, we don't have a long-term commitment, so we can move that talent to another, um, another client, or we can, maybe they no longer need a digital marketing assistant, but they need a graphic designer. We can switch out talent pretty quickly. So we've, we really become this talent acquisition partner for them. And is the, the model to be understood somewhat similar to like, there's all sorts of other staffing firms, maybe in other domains where since you're responsible for the recruitment, the retention, the management of these folks being deployed against uh, different problems, 
they basically embed in the team once they've kind of been selected for and agreed upon with your client, but you're maintaining the employment contract, insurance, management of that, the risk associated with either the person not working out or the client not so longer being able to pay. And that's what basically warrants the margin that you make on top of that individual's compensation. Exactly. So um, one of the you know, there's a like you said, there's a lot of different types of offshoring models. Some people will just go here. Here's a talent you can interview a bunch, uh, pick pick who you want here just for a small fee. Um, other people do more of a marketplace model where they'll bring the talent in, but then you can select them. We are uh, we are more a little bit more high touch than that. So um, on both sides, the talent and the client side, we're reducing a lot of risk there. So we're fully vetting the talent, we're fully vetting the client, making sure we're making good matches based on hard and soft skills. Um, we want people to have a fulfilling career, you know, and, and enjoy working with that in-house brand team. And we want the brand team, obviously, to, to get the full use out of the growth assistant. Um, so it is, it's very much, it is a two-sided market for me. And I look at, I value both sides of that market equally. And and Jesse's background with Ampush, like they're working with huge companies like Uber to help them implement marketing campaigns. So if if folks just don't necessarily have as much legibility into what it means, like an in-house brand team, like these are large companies, you, you'll have to disclose if, if they're not like, you know, a, a privilege to do so. But they have budgets where even if this is maybe more relatively expensive than going and hiring these people individually, the brand guarantee that Growth Assistant provides, the vetting, these other services are well worth it to them. And they're still saving money and gaining efficiency from plugging these people in. I say in-house brand teams. Um, it, it Sometimes it's one person. Sometimes, yeah. you know, a lot of our, um, you know, small to mid-market companies are one to, to five people on a marketing team. So one Growth Assistant may be shared across a lot of people. Or if you're Noom, for example, you have a Facebook team and you have a, you know, a YouTube team and you have a growth assistant for each of those. Um, or, you know, it really each, each, uh, I'm learning quite a bit about all the different structures for marketing organizations too, which has been fun. Um, but everybody's, everybody's a little different. Um, but you can, there's been many ways we can either split a growth assistant across a couple, make it a more generalist, or it's very specific to one channel like Facebook or, you know, you, the YouTube team or um, really depends on the size of the company and what's needed. Absolutely. And also, you know, we, so, so my company does a lot of videos for like those small and mid-sized businesses that you referenced. And the amount of these companies that are doing millions, maybe even tens of millions in revenue. And there's like one marketing manager who is spread infinitely thin that is just put in this like impossible situation of getting results while having no time and limited resources. Is is really stunning at, at at some points when we come in as as marketers like looking to help them and you know our our model is much more we plug in and we're just going to handle whatever video problem you have that's taken care of and taken off the table. Um, but you're dead on that like they would love to spend more time on strategy. They would love to to put more pieces together, but there's so much execution that just has to be completed that otherwise isn't getting done. For digital marketing in general, it's a it's a fairly early concept, you know in in it in marketing history, right? It's kind of like where software was in the 90s, very implementation heavy. There's so much more optimization that has to happen. There's all these different channels. Um, so if you are, if you're on more than one channel, just aggregating the data to know how one channel's doing compared to another is, is 
pretty manually intensive. Now there are tools that are helping helping that like improve that process, but um, they aren't great right now. Um, so you were at just a, a very early stage where um, a growth assistant can easily plug in and take a lot of those tasks off. So what have you had to learn, like in terms of the entrepreneurial skill set? You you kind of come from the background more in the recruiting and the people management. And Jesse's, you know, maybe dropping a, a viral tweet thread, but he's got, you know, 18 other businesses in his portfolio that he's either looking at or involved with or, or touching in some way, shape or form. Like what what skills have you had to develop as an entrepreneur, you know, as you guys come up on this two year anniversary to enable this growth? It, it's never smooth. I, like we can all like, you know, nod to like, oh, yeah, just like straight, you know, up the whole way. But what if some of the growing pains you've had to go through as an entrepreneur? Yeah, there's a couple that jump out um, that are kind of front and center. Um, I mentioned earlier that story with the uh, with the, the viral tweet, and all of a sudden we had 300 leads. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in in that process, I lost a bunch of those leads because I could only get through so many calls a month, right? Um, and so many people weren't responding. You know, then my response rate's going to drop after x um, x amount of months, right? So. Hiring ahead is something that I think is is a hard thing to learn um, because you go from this bootstrap mentality of kind of grind and do everything, right? And then you're at a point where you're like, oh my God, I could have used somebody two months ago. Now I really need to hire somebody. And then, uh, and then you're, you're too late at that point. You know, you, you, you're, it's, I would say it's less efficient. So that is, um, that's something I've learned is to kind of hire ahead. So we're getting better at, it's not perfect, but we're getting better at, you know, predicting uh, what talent we will need at what times um, for my internal team. Uh, So uh, we just did a a wave of hiring um, in the last couple of months. Um, That's one thing that stands out as a kind of a a learning lesson. Another thing is more of like a mindfulness shift, Um, understanding when you're making decisions, where you're making them from. So like, are you making them from a place of curiosity and like wonder? Are you making them from a place of like threat, fear, maybe something's affecting your ego? Um, I think those are, it's when you're, when you're physically feeling something in decision-making, your hands are getting sweaty. If your throat's like kind of clamming up, like whatever it is, you're probably not, making it, you're probably not in a curious state, like something's feeling threatened. And to know in those moments that you should pause, breathe, not make a decision right then uh, is has been very, very helpful. That is really fascinating. And I don't know if we've really had the chance to explore that idea before on this show. So if if you'd be willing to, I'd love to go deeper on that. And just if if there's a tangible example that you can articulate, I know personally, that I have definitely had to make decisions out of fear before, and they're always constrained. There's always, in hindsight, a big blind spot um, because of the kind of turtling, you know, metaphorical action that you do when you're in a p- position of fear. Um, and then at the same time, you know, when you're bootstrapped, like you know, like you said, investing, you know, I'm sorry, hiring ahead of growth and these other types of choices are a lot scarier than if you have, you know, someone's else's, someone else's capital to deploy and, you know, some sort of uh, crazy balance sheet to make those types of decisions. So can you just talk a little bit more about how you've had to learn that? Yeah. So, so for the decision-making piece, uh, an example that really sticks out was in my first team 
most teams call them offsites, but they're kind of onsites for us because we're fully remote. So the first time our team physically got together was last October. Um, and there are just four of us. Uh, we met, uh, we met in person for the first time, you know, we, you only see people from like the neck up and then you realize, oh man, they have like legs. And, um, it was, it, it was a great meeting. It was, uh, we left there so pumped and motivated and aligned. It was fantastic. But during those four days, um, there were, there were a lot of ups and downs. We were obviously all getting to know each other at a, a much more personal level too. I made it a point to um, introduce a lot of vulnerability activities into that um, onsite um, because I'm trying to build this level of trust with people so that we can attack problems. And when we see someone who maybe isn't making a decision from you know a place of curiosity, we can call we can call it out comfortably. So there was a point during that meeting when everyone was getting very kind of laser focused at some numbers. I think it was a projection model. Um, you know, was the churn rate going to be this percent or that percent? And what were we going to agree on? Uh, and I called a timeout and I said, Hey, we're, we got a break now. I need, I definitely need a break. I like, I'm, I really want to be right right now. It's, and, and then I know, okay, that's my ego talking. That's not, that's not curiosity talking. Like I just really wanted my numbers to be right. So we took a break for 45. I went out and got probably 1500 steps. I'm, I may have cried on that walk, like just like working out my feelings, to be honest. Um, and came back to the room. We sat down. I talked about it. I said, hey, guys, I this is how I was feeling. I didn't realize it in the moment, but this is how I was feeling when we were talking about that. And I just wasn't ready. So I called it. That's why I called the break. Um, and everybody after that, the the i mean we just took off it was like uh the momentum and everything that that was kind of stalled before all that stall went away and we just took off from there we left with like um a plan everyone was excited about we uh had initiatives everyone knew what they were going to do by when uh and we tracked to those that quarter we we surpassed our goal last quarter i think it is 100% due to the alignment and focus that we had going into it so that that's an example. That's so good. And and it's so important to acknowledge that, you know, only the leader can really fully create that kind of psychological safety and clarity, because there can be people who are junior that want to do that. But if it's not made apparent from the top that like, hey, we can acknowledge this vulnerability, we can kind of, you know, display this stuff in pursuit of better, in pursuit of truth, in pursuit of, you know, clarity on an alignment, um, it's going to be really, really hard to accomplish that. And that's, I mean, that's what one of the many things that I love about being an entrepreneur is it forces you to have that growth. It's like either grow into, you know, these capabilities or, you know, maybe least bad stall out at worst, like crash and burn because you can't, you know, develop in, in, in these certain ways. That's, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just had a moment at uh, an, our second offsite or onsite. Um, everyone came here in Chicago. Uh, we had some new people in this group too. So you kind of have to rebuild that vulnerability and trust every time because there's usually more people in the mix, you know, one powerful question, just like any leader can use is what's, what's one memory or, um, thing you've had to overcome in your life that shape you to be who you are. 
So maybe it's not something you've overcome, but what's one thing in your life that has shaped who you are today? Kind of a question like that. And as the leader, you opening up during that and saying something truly vulnerable really helps everyone else feel connected and able to share. Um, and it was amazing what came out, uh, uh, you know, of everybody and, and uh, the, the trust that followed after that, you know, um, we don't, we don't really get those in this like zoom world that we have now. We don't really get those moments as frequently as we would if we were in the office and could see that someone was physically, you know, irritated or overwhelmed or just sad that day. Like we just, we don't have that opportunity for that connection. So I think you really on your offsites and those connection points, if you're a fully remote team, you really have to work hard at introducing those more. Yeah. And what I've, what I've tried to do, and I'm definitely not perfect of it, but it is so hard in the remote environments. It's so easy. You know, someone could be like nervous tapping their leg and you just don't see it because literally it's not on the screen. But if I see anything, you know, remotely there, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to bring it up. Not like in any way, shape or form ascribing like blame to someone, but I'll try, I'll say like, I'm probably being an idiot here, but I think that Susie hates this idea. And and try to like almost like, hey, it could be just me who's completely misreading the, the, the situation, but I'm trying to just, you know, help people bring that to the forefront. Maybe that wasn't the perfect example of how that's actually executed. But yeah. like if you're not calling it out and the person doesn't feel comfortable bringing it up, then it is getting buried. And now that's a blind spot moving forward for your organization. So obviously the on sites slash off sites, however we articulate that is an important part of the process. But as a team, like how do we have more productive meetings where all of that's brought up, even in a Zoom environment is is clearly one of the superpowers that you guys have, have leveraged all this growth. Yeah, the you know, a a phrase that we use a lot that takes uh, it kind of makes it an inarguable statement is a story that I have is, mm. um, you know, I have a story that you may not be aligned with with what we're discussing here. You know, just you kind of open it up. It's not charged. It's just like it's just a thought. It just, you know, it's just a just a story. You know, it's not something that I hold as fact. Like I'm admitting that like I I don't, you know, I don't know. Is you know, am I off? And they may say, Oh, oh no, 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 I'm totally fine, totally fine, totally aligned. Or yeah, like I'm feeling a little off. It just like opens that door a little bit. Amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow that, maybe not steal it. I'm gonna borrow it from yeah. you. Um, I've got two more kind of topics I want to discuss, and then we'll, we'll aim towards yeah. wrapping up in our last questions, Adrian. So one of them is, I mean, your background is in people operations. You've had to recruit a lot of talent, uh, to, to be growth assistants for all, for all your clients. Um, I could try to back of the napkin at given your 7 million annual recurring revenue. I'm not going to try to do it. We don't do live math. Um, but, uh, just in terms of successfully hiring people, uh, vetting them, uh, job descriptions, you know. The 80-20 of like, the, you know, given the amount of time you've now spent doing this, this is like the stuff that just really is is the main uh, tasks to be completed or things to filter for, things to consider that drive the biggest outcomes as it pertains to hiring. Hiring is something that uh, that I, I, I have learned to do more 80-20, as you said, but the, the talent acquisition piece, I would say I'm not, I'm, I uh, my bar is, is higher than 80, 20 for that one. So, and okay. our talent process, I mean, that is our product, right? So if I'm, if I'm not, uh, if I don't have an agreement with the client on, on what we're looking for, like a very clear agreement on what we're looking for, I'm not going to find the right talent. They're not going to last in the role. We're going to have churn. 
that's not good for anybody. Um, you know, I, I want that client to be happy. I want the talent to have a great experience. In the end, for me, I want to help people. And so the best way I can help people here is getting very clear with the client on what their needs are exactly. And if they don't know, kind of consulting with them to figure out what those needs are, but getting very clear on that with them and then going and finding the talent that does that. On the talent side, um, you know, it's the normal, it's the same sort of uh, funnel like we have for our sales side. So there's, you know, at the top of the funnel, there's all the, all the applications. Um, and even before that, obviously the, the marketing effort that goes into those. Um, one of the cool marketing things that we've done on the talent side, kind of what, what Twitter's done for us on the client side, on our, uh, our supply side, on the talent side, we have TikTok. Um, and we have like, you know, 100,000 followers on TikTok on our TikTok accounts and stuff. I mean, it, it's been it, some, of, some of that has been incredible to see that growth too. But that gets us kind of a huge influx of talent um, other than like the normal job boards, right? Um, now, from there, we have a pretty strict vetting schedule. So everyone gets um, three to four interviews, usually an assessment in there as well. So depending on the role, we, you know, it's important that a, um, that like a reports analyst be able to run a report for us. So we, you know, we give them some data and have them run a certain report. That's part of our vetting process. Um, it, it for, um, graphic designers reviewing the portfolio, uh, there's sometimes a test for them as well, depending on kind of what the client needs are. Um, and that's another thing we can tweak our assessment based on, on our client needs. Um, and then there, there's actually a series of tests that happen before they're even introduced to a client that are more, um, I would say, uh, soft skills tests. So, uh, you know, we're putting things on their calendar. There's a certain standard. You've got to be there this many minutes ahead. And that's just kind of the growth assistance standard. You have to be a proactive communicator. If, if we're getting any red flags before we have an onboarding call with a client, we will pull that talent. Um, because it, it's, uh, and, and we will pull the talent and coach them. We don't just like clearly technically, you know, they, they passed all these other stages. The next part is they just, they may just need more coaching and training on kind of more of the, what we call the GA way. So, you know, that, that is something that's very important to us and important to the brand when we're introducing to clients is that we have, uh, every talents rolling off, not only technically skilled, but with the soft skills as well to make that a successful relationship. It's a kind of different version of the higher, slow, fire, fast phenomena where you're not necessarily firing fast, you're, you're uh, fast to coach when there's a misalignment, but then also, you know, making sure that that onboarding process, in addition to the, the hiring process is really thorough to get someone ready to go. So that is really fantastic and actionable and yet more that I can borrow from you uh, in my own business building. You know, it, it moves, it all moves very fast too. you know, we're at a point where we have a bench of talent too. Um, so, you know, we've hired ahead in a lot of these cases, knowing what our, our demand's going to be, but it, it's still a very fast process for so us to be able to place someone. It's usually two to three weeks. And we usually come in under that two weeks for clients. So, um, it's important for the client. A lot of them need that help. They need it right now. So it's important that we can move fast and it's also really attractive to the talent. Oh, wow. I can be hired and, and have a job and like, you know, basically a week of my interviews. Um, it's, it's super attractive to the talent there. Yeah. And so what, what that makes me think of, we do something relatively similar where our video team, when, when they're first hired, they're doing stuff for us first and our, our content. And that's a great way to vet them, coach them, tweak our technique before they're interacting with client work. 
But then basically, I'm guessing you have something similar. You, if you have those people on the sidelines ready to go, you have this bench of marketing assets to deploy against your own company until they're actually fulfilled with, with the client objectives. So that probably really helps, you know, growth assistant, the company do good marketing for itself in the process of, you know, getting ready to, to serve those clients. Totally. Totally. That's a flywheel right there. I like it. Mm -hmm. I need like a flywheel horn or something whenever we hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So last question, this is kind of philosophical, um, but I, I have this uh, quote that Naval Ravikant tweeted um, that literally I, I think about so, so, so much. And I, I don't, I don't get the chance to talk with many people who are also probably seeing it as clearly as I am. And the quote is, remote work will do to white collar jobs what globalization did to blue collar jobs. So we saw this whole phenomenon over the last like three decades or so, all this offshoring of manufacturing and, and these, these pro professions that were previously, you know, as, as an American, I have a super American biased viewpoint stuff that was done locally, you know, this town in Ohio was predicated on this manufacturing facility, all sent to all these other different corners of the globe. And, you know, while a lot of white collar work was still staying in the, the local offices here, this remote work, pandemic inspired, uh, you know, Zoom inspired, uh, you know, internet communications inspired is allowing a lot more competition to enter the uh, pool as it pertains to these white collar uh, conventional types of defined jobs. To me, this just feels like a wrecking ball that you know has a positive impact for your clients. There's there's a positive side to it, but there's a lot of folks that I think have a blind spot as to the amount of competition that is entering the fray. Because my interpretation is, if you're training you know people at the at a data level, a campaign building level, you know the basic implementation level, that is the precursor to being able to execute on strategy and so on and so forth up the chain. So. What's your interpretation there of what you kind of foresee in the marketing space generally um, over the coming years? Yeah, um, you know, this the idea of offshoring um, has been very exclusive to the the largest uh, banks, the largest consulting companies for decades. So this is not a new idea. It's now becoming a more mainstream accessible idea. So Accenture would consult for a large company and tell them they should offshore something. Accenture could either set up that offshore for them, right? Or, um, uh, or they would find them an offshore company to work with, right? So this has been happening for a very, very long time, um, but it's only benefited the largest companies who are able to access it. Uh, so what's happening now is just an opening to everyone else, um, accessibility for businesses, you know, smaller and more mid-market. Uh, so the idea itself is not new. It's the accessibility, like you said, driven by pandemic. We don't, we don't all don't have to work in the same place anymore. We all can be remote. And a lot of companies have gotten used to that model and have the infrastructure for that model now. So I I don't think the threat is to necessarily all the um, white collar workers, but they're and, and a lot of places still are mandating some sort of in-person, which an offshore model wouldn't be able to do. Um, so I, I don't think it's, it will affect. We aren't seeing people come in and, and ask for us to replace 
a a full team. It has happened that they've reduced staff or we were their customer. They actually reduced us to start. Then they reduced their U.S. staff. And now they're circling back to backfill with us again. So, you know, that's the model that I've seen it used. But I, I haven't seen yet where someone comes in and says, I'm getting rid of this entire level and I want you to replace this entire level. That I, I, I do think that it's happened in the past. It will continue to happen. Um, but the uh, as, as new technologies are introduced, I do think that the uh, strategist will have access to those probably before um, like the growth assistant, for example, would have access unless they train them on that. Um, which we would encourage, um, but it I I don't foresee it going in in that direction dramatically. Deep down, I also I I also feel like us thinking us being like Americans thinking that Americans should have something like are entitled to something um, is is maybe when when we shift our view a little bit more global. Maybe just the best person for that role should be hired for that role, you know? I, I strongly agree with that. I, I'm not saying that it's wrong that it's occurring. I just think that it I, I think that it is a macro trend. And so so my basic argument is it is not even an argument. I'm trying to elevate this phenomena, make it clear that this is in the process of happening. Like, yes, you're a great entrepreneur, Jesse's a great entrepreneur, but you're also catching a tailwind at your back that there's a desire for this and like the timing is right. If you had tried to start this business seven years ago, I think it just would have been harder to get everything going because, you know, remote teleconferencing wasn't as strong and all these other elements that make this just such a perfect time for you guys to be executing on this business. And and it's really more through the lens of like, I don't think that we're going to like imagine the complexity of the regular regulation that would have to be enacted to try and stop this phenomenon. Like I actually don't really, I'm not smart enough to figure out what that would even be, let alone have much faith that it would be particularly effective. It would probably just end up hamstringing certain more easy to regulate businesses and in, in implementing something like this. So when I, when I say that, I definitely agree with you, the global mindset, heck yeah. If you, if you have the skill and the capability by all means, go compete and go win. I I see. I think it's more like ringing the bell. Like you better watch out. And and if you aren't iterating on your skills and and making yourself a linchpin and um that like super valuable piece of your team, you are facing more risk in the form of competition of others. That that's really more the the note that I'm trying to strike. Perhaps not perfectly. Yeah. No. Yeah. I I totally get that. That um. That makes sense, and I I could see the the I could see I could see like the the argument for that for sure. The one thing that sticks out for me is that this has been happening only to elite company. I will call them the elite group of companies for a very long time, right? So they haven't they clearly haven't regulated uh, the the big banks of the world right yeah. in in this way yet. For them to start regulating it for small and mid sized businesses. Um, uh, would 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 be a little bit unfair, right? And so I feel Agreed. like we're just making accessible to what the largest businesses have had for a very long time. And when you look at those businesses, those 
there's still plenty of talent stateside working for them, right, who have been doing this for decades. So if they were to train up people um, to take on uh, more roles there, um, I think they, I think we would have seen that. We would have seen that trend. It's going to be interesting regardless to see yeah. the whole thing play out and uh, the growth of growth assistant play out as well. Adrian, I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to be on the show today and sharing your uh, insights and, the, and that uh, part about vulnerability as a leader I, was really powerful. I'm definitely going to uh, use that myself. Uh, before we let you go, uh, two final questions. The first is what digital coordinates can we provide for people? that want to learn more about you, Growth Assistant, and all the stuff you guys are up to? Yeah, so either um, hit us up on the website, so uh, growthassistant.com. Uh, you can, uh, there's a contact us form there. If the, the homepage doesn't answer your question, there's also a, a place to fill out a form so that we get back to you if you're interested in the service. Um, we just launched a new website too. Would love to hear people's feedback. Uh, and then the the second place, probably easiest place is Twitter as well, either the growth assistant handle or, or my handle. Um, there is a growth assistant who manages my, my uh, DMs. So um, would love to hear from you there as well. We are going to link that all in the show notes to this episode. You can find it in the app. We are probably listening right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. Adrian, I have really enjoyed speaking with you, and I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Yeah, personal challenge. Uh, for one full day, write down everything you do, every task you complete in that day. Uh, at the end of that day, put a little check mark next to those that you do every day or, or you know, more than once in a week. Uh, and then ask yourself, which of these tasks could I document, you know, copy and paste this, you know, put it, put it in a doc, fairly easy to learn, make a loom video to show somebody. Those are all tasks you should be delegating. So you can get back that time to focus on more high level strategic work. I love it. I am, uh, in the process of, of learning this lesson and implementing it and getting better at it. And uh, I can tell you, it's transformative. It frees you up to, to really do high impact work. And so I hope that people will take that challenge. Um, and I hope that they'll check out Growth Assistant if they want to uh, find some great talent that can help them scale their marketing and, and do great work. Adrian, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. We just went deep with Adrian Schwager. Hope not there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my interview with Adrian. If you want to learn more, about digital marketing, about all this stuff, you need to check out our past interview with her co-founder, Jesse Puji. We talk about building Ampush, his aspirations now that he's sold it, and the lessons that he's learned from being a portfolio company in a very large and successful media conglomerate. Lots of good stuff there. Go check it out.